Leslie, Leslie, Leslie. Hey, Steph. How are you? I am great. How are you? I'm good. You know, you know, I was feeling a little under the weather yesterday and I got my, even though I'm vaccinated, I got my first COVID test just to be extra sure and it was negative. Woohoo! But that was an experience. <laughs> How'd it feel? Yeah, actually, I kind of liked it. It itched out my... <laughs> It oh, just itched yeah. everything out. It was great. So anyway. <laughs> You're like, it's all clean now. Everything's all cleaned out. Yeah. But anyway, that was the responsible thing to do, so I felt... Well, I'm glad you're feeling better yeah. because that's always a little stressful now. We, used to, we always used to have, I used to have like three colds a month. Like, yeah, yeah. So now we like get something and we're like, what? Yes, what is it? So there are still other viruses and we need to <laughs> yeah, besides COVID. Well, glad you're feeling better. Thank um, you. We have the most amazing guest on amazing dr marissa coleman um many of you may have heard of her she's a psychologist i believe by training and then uh but is now uh, leads a lot of the edi or equity diversity inclusion work here at the hospital so we had this amazing conversation with her and i have listened to it three times now and literally could listen to her talk all day and I learn something new about myself every single time I listen to this. So it's fabulous, I think. And I love how she uses examples that we can use in, as nurses. Tangible examples, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And not just as nurses, but just as everyday people. So Human beings. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I hope you listen. I hope you enjoy it as much as we do. She. We want her to be our new best friend. Exactly. Our, hope you're listening. Hope you're listening for a second. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we really enjoy talking to her. We so. do. And um, attached with this podcast is a flyer that she gave us to send out. So check that out as well. Yep. Um, more great tools to use. Utilize. Exactly. And here we go. Well, it's nice to see you again. Nice, nice to see you. you. So, because I don't know if all of our listeners know who you are, we're just going to have you like introduce yourself, what your role is here, and a little bit about your background. So, Marissa Coleman, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I serve as lead psychologist for the adult medical psychology service within psychological services here. And then my other hat is senior EDI, um, equity, diversity, and inclusion advisor um, for the organization. So I work a lot with senior leaders and Dr. Leffler, really many people throughout the organization on our um, diversity and equity initiatives. When did you get that role here? The EDI senior advisor role? Yeah, so it was finalized, I believe, last summer, so summer 2020. And I, I began working in the psychological services department. It must have been August 2018, actually. And from really the beginning of my time in our department, we've been doing some EDI initiatives and creating like a didactic training series for our psychology interns, as well as psychiatry um, residents and fellows have been invited to participate. So the the title change last summer just allowed me to do it on a, a more broader scale in the organization you know we had a conversation before but we're just kind of to in, to continue that about just sort of how how that work is happening here at the hospital what that looks like for nurses how as nurses we can be really impactful how we can engage and then be impactful moving forward sort of learning and then paying it forward in our practice and kind of starting maybe a little bit with 
what is implicit bias, privilege, things like that, what that those definitions are, but what it also looks like as a nurse. Uh, if I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit. And I, and I think in, as a nurse specifically in sort of a small northern community in, in Vermont, in Vermont <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I, I think that's a multi-part question. So, I, so would you like me to start with? You can unpack this, that however you'd um, like. <laughs> I'm going to try and challenge myself to share a resource as as I talk about some of the definitions. Excellent. And just so that if people that are listening want to learn more and dive into some of that learning. So implicit bias, right? So first, I, I always want to share that we all have them. It is not something based on how you identify every single human being has implicit bias. And what that means is that we have our own thoughts and opinions about, and we make moral judgments about what things are good or bad, healthy or unhealthy. And that is really influenced oftentimes by our upbringing, our backgrounds, and the cultures that we are a part of. Implicit means that we are not aware of them. You know, again, we all have them and we are not aware of all of our implicit biases. Um, so part of the the work that I think, you know, I hope that we all will engage in is trying to uncover and become more aware, but also how to have conversations when we kind of run into an implicit bias or somebody identifies it within us that we weren't aware of. It's so natural to become defensive and to feel shame around that, but we really all have them. A couple of resources that are really helpful for unpacking that more. There's a great book called um, Blind Spot: Hidden Biases, Hidden Biases in Good People, and um, that kind of goes through the science of bias, and it's a really great book. I'm gonna blank on the author's names. I'm just gonna name that, but you can go to <laughs> Amazon or Google it. And then there's the a website that will be published on our soon-to-be-published network DEI webpage called um it's an assessment called the iat and iat iat and you can go through and take um, short assessments on a number of different things and it will give you more information about what some of your biases are and so <laughs> yeah. it was yeah. i was like oh, okay yep there it is <laughs> there's I my know. bias it's a right humbling there. experience it's super humbling yes <laughs> And actually, in our learning series that Stephen Graves and I are doing for the organization, the first, the pre-work for the first session, the knowledge of self, we ask people to take a couple of the subtests in the IAT. And then privilege is, you know, essentially un, unearned advantages based off of an identity dimension. So if we want to talk about race, right, a privileged identity would be um, if you identify racially as white and it's unearned meaning it, you you didn't get the privilege because of something that you did you were born into it right like that that racial classification system has historically been set up to privilege white people and right. disadvantage people of color so it's a um, just because bias it's a, i mean privilege is a just because thing you have it just because you're white or you have it just because you're a white male, you know, exactly. and no other reason. Yeah, exactly. And when we think about all of the diversity dimensions, right, that extend beyond race, like there are privileged identities and then there are what um, a psychologist Dr. Kenneth Hardy calls subjugated identities. And, and that is through every variable. So if we think about 
even gender. We think about sexual orientation, religion, ability status, mm-hmm. all of these things. And that can that can sort of be very much like a situa- situational too. So like you could be in a in a meeting where you're like, okay, this person has privilege because they are my boss or they are a white male or they are a, you know, and then you can go into a different situation where I'm the one stands, stands out or whatever. So yeah. you can I kind of each, each situation you're in sort of has that almost like a different level of privilege. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really great point because there are some nuances to it and, and actually, um, Dr. Ken Hardy talks about the tasks of the privileged and the tasks of the subjugated. And he kind of gets that in order to engage in critical conversations about any diversity dimension, you need to know what identity you're speaking from and if it's a privileged identity or if it's a subjugated identity. So an example that I often use just within the medical field, like if I am in a conversation about race and I'm engaging in a conversation about race with a white colleague, I am speaking from my subjugated identity as a woman of color. My white colleague is speaking from their privileged identity as a white person, right? But if I am speaking with a learner, regardless if the learner is white, and it is about clinical content or patient care, I am going to be speaking from a privileged identity because of my education level and because of my credential or whatever else. But I'm supervisor, right? And my learner, even if they're white, but we are speaking about clinical work, they would be speaking from a subjugated identity just because of the hierarchy that is established within medicine in that regard. And what about when you have like a patient, like yeah, patient nurse like interaction? Because that I feel like is I feel like form of privilege in a way. and what that looks like, and then how that is complicated when you have these implicit biases that also kind of um, directing your care a little bit, and what that looks like. Yeah, you know, that's a really great question. And honestly, like, I hats off to all of you nurses. I have, like, the deepest respect for <laughs> the work that you do because of the, the level of interaction and so much of yourself that you have to pour into your care, right? You're bringing yourselves, all of who you are, your background, your own value judgments, and your implicit biases into the into the care of the patient. And also within that relationship, there is inherent power and privilege, right, as a care provider to a patient that's in the hospital in a vulnerable state that is dependent on your care to get better. So that so that's how power and privilege can be a part of that. Now, as a care provider, if if you are not aware of what some of your blind spots may be or what some of your biases may be, it's really easy for patients to step all over that, to activate it. And um, without that, without that self-awareness, it can be really easy to blame your reactions, right, on a patient, you know, not being compliant or a patient presentation. And so in my work with the behavioral response team that we're, we're piloting that on Baird 3 and Baird 4, what I love about that work is that I get to support the nursing teams on coping and also managing care for challenging patient behaviors, right, and patient presentations. And so we do have conversations about, okay, how is this patient triggered by being in this environment? You know, what is triggered within you when the patient speaks to you or is rejecting of the care or is over-dependent, you know? And so we do spend a lot of time, whether it's 
explicitly, overtly or covertly talking about our own biases. Tom, tell us more about that, that pilot program right now and what that looks like and who's in it and what your goals are. Yeah, I would be happy to. So we've been piloting it for, I don't know, several months now since last year. I think we've done about 16 behavioral response team consults. And we started with Baird 3. We've expanded it to Baird 4. And essentially what it is, similar to how teams would call in a med psych consult, usually it's been the nurse managers or nurse leadership that will call in a BRT consult. And it's if a patient, if the team is either struggling and caring for a patient or a patient's been admitted for a really long time and there are barriers to discharge, Mm -hmm. um, every reason for consultation is a bit different. Um, sometimes it can be because there have been a lot of code eights called or staff has been injured because while caring for the patient, whether there's been verbal or physical uh, attacks, right? And so the BRT consult is called in. I respond and set up, right now we're doing it virtual, I set up a Zoom invite and essentially invite some of the key players in the care of the team. And then I ask people to forward it to whoever else may may need to be there. So usually what that means is, Again, nurse leadership, the nurses that have been working directly with the patient, ethics has been involved most of the time, Uh, physician teams, case management, we've had security sit in on some of the calls. Patients involved? The patient has not been involved, no. We currently, we just kind of come together and we talk about what the team needs for support, um, what are, brainstorm some of the barriers and then discuss any kind of ethical dilemmas or challenges and then and then MedPsych is obviously involved. And so I facilitate that conversation. And then the team, there's some concrete like action items that come out of that. And then the team tries to implement those. And then I can be reconsulted if we need a follow-up. We're still at the beginning of it. We haven't been able to expand it to all floors. Um, however, it, we've gotten some good data. And I think that the feedback from nursing particularly is that it has felt supportive to them. Yeah, and I would imagine that there's a lot of where you're having to kind of break down a little bit of the biases that have already developed in that role as nurses. Cause I feel like sometimes, especially somebody that has been in the hospital a long time, we all kind of develop our own opinion of that person. And then that kind of gets spread around. And then sometimes that is itself can be a barrier to, you know, what's the next the type step. of care. Yeah. yeah the, and what's the, the next te- step. Cause right. we have all kind of created our narrative around that patient, um, what they, what we think they need right. and things like that. Right. So I would imagine there is some of that going on a little bit yeah there you know there certainly is I, I you know I think that we've spent a lot of time trying to educate and work on biases with the substance use disorder population mm-hmm. um, yeah. a lot of as a psychologist I practice from a trauma-informed lens and so a lot of the conversations we have are trauma focused if the patient's having difficult behaviors or is um, aggressive like how could we understand that also from a trauma lens? What does it mean for them to be in the hospital? What are some of their triggers that maybe we weren't aware of? So we try to really speak about patients as whole beings with lives and experiences before their admission. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of things I was thinking about, I, I wanna circle a little bit back to sort of the idea of implicit privilege. I have a a male nursing colleague who I love and respect who has, he, it's an interesting conversation we have a lot because he feels as a male nurse that there is, and there may be some truth to this, I don't know, about he, he feels less 
adept at nursing because it was built, it was a female raised profession that is predominantly female and built in the fashion of how women tend to work best. And he feels that he is, and he, and he talks about this very openly, openly it's, yeah. yeah, that he feels that he is less adept at being able to fit into nursing culture because of being a male. Not necessarily white male, but just male in general. general. And it's so, it, it's such an interesting conversation because it brings up this like, well, how does it feel to not, you know? That's, I mean, I, right, then we all have our own. We all have our own. Think about it, like, yeah, not so great, is it? You know, but, yeah. but we talk about it a lot because I, it, when I step back from it, I'm like, well, he might be kind of right. right. This might be a situation where you get what I'm saying. Like, they, they it's I, a, yes, I think I do. And, and, when I hear it, first of all, that fascinates me. I, I would actually love to be a part of that conversation. Yeah, I know. He would love to be like yeah, bring it up. Yeah, yeah, he would. You know what I'm talking yeah, about, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My mind goes to does that is that just limited to the nursing profession or is that how males are socialized in our like mainstream culture, just in terms of you know, caregiving and emotion and what is what does it mean, you know? What does it mean to be male or to be strong? We think about even how the differences, the research that shows the difference in how we talk to even babies, right? right. And oh. Yeah, there's so much that I'm fascinated about that, just with gender and, you know, even our non-binary colleagues, right. like yeah. what would be their perspective and yeah. feelings about, about, you know, some of those themes and Right, he, even, he, he even talks about how problems get tackled on more of an executive level with regard to the union and how he would barrel through some of these problem solvings, whereas as women, a lot of his women colleagues want to pull people together and have a discussion about it. And he is like, this is not the t it, it's really a fascinating yeah. Yeah. situation. Anyway, I just sort of and maybe we can unpack that again more at some point. But yeah, this is maybe true. we'll have him and you and the four of us on and we can talk <laughs> yeah. about it. Yeah. You know, that that is I, I mean, I think it's also just indicative of like all of our fields were created within different cultural zeitgeists. Right. Yep. And like yep. I think about even psychology where historically that was a predominantly male field where the trends of that are changing, where it is becoming a very heavily female field and so it's just also interesting how like how that changes the trends right uh, but yeah the trajectory of of how medical profession provides care to somebody like yep. what the, what the vernacular is what the what the trajectory of like actual therapy is i think is probably changes yeah but, yeah absolutely um, and then one other the other thing we were hoping to talk about is sort of that notion of calling in and calling out in a difficult situation that you just we encounter in general. Yeah, I think um, I think there's just in terms of practical skills that nurses can use um, when you know as we start being more aware of certain you know biases and um, certain opportunities where we can either speak out or um, where we're seeing people being harmed. So usually emotionally um, and what that looks like and how to step in how or to not step in. Yep. And I think there's so much in that where you when I've been in that situation, it's almost like I like freeze up and yep. I don't then know what to you know, I'm like, I need like 30 seconds to figure out where, what I need to do. Because um, it is like a skill, it's a skill that you have to practice uh, when you feel that that's happening. And so kind of 
you know, from your perspective, you know, what what can nurses do to really start helping with that skill and like start mm-hmm. to build that skill? Right. So there are a couple of thoughts that come to mind and then I can share like some concrete tools that can be utilized. Well, first is practice, like you said, absolutely. That's kind of where it starts. It's not if if you're looking to feel comfortable in calling in or calling out bias, then you likely will never attempt to do it, right? Because it's not going to ever really feel comfortable. Right. It doesn't feel comfortable when we are called out. It doesn't feel comfortable calling somebody calling in or calling out other kind of, you know, bias behavior. So so that is, I think, something to just accept. Great yes. point. No, is a great point. No, I think it's That lesson right there is yeah. worth it. Yeah. I mean, and it's, that, that's probably the number one barrier to some of that, right? Yeah. I think I think a lot of people and I've been having a lot of conversations about this recently. I think a lot of people get stuck on like this feels uncomfortable. And so maybe that's a sign that I'm not doing it correctly or that's a sign that I shouldn't say something. And really, no, like it is just going to probably feel uncomfortable. And the other thing is you had said something that I think is important about how when you're in those moments, you wish you could just have like 30 seconds to just think Mm -hmm. around yourself. And my suggestion is to create that space for yourself. Take the space. 30 seconds is, you know, or a minute or whatever you need is okay. Even in the moment, you could create space by saying something like, I just need to pause for a second. Something just happened that didn't feel right. And I'm trying to make sense of it. Did you notice that too? Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's a way to invite somebody into a conversation. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, or I'm aware that something just went off in our conversation or that I said something and based on your reaction, I could feel that there was a shift. I'm trying to, I, I, I'm trying to make sense of it. I'm wondering if you noticed it, if we could talk about it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So creating some space or I'm aware that something just happened and I don't fully understand, but I don't want to burden you with educating me. I, I, mm-hmm. I will circle back to you. I'm going to go and figure this out. Yeah. Those are all different ways to kind yep. of create space and and with that said we can't always do that if if there's like active harm happening so seed the way is an organization based out of burlington and i love their resource that they adapted from the organ center for educational equity on like what did you say it's called what did you say responses to racist comments and there's a really great kind of sheet. Um, if anybody is listening that would want this worksheet, you can either email um, Stephanie or Leslie, or you could email me directly, marissa.coleman at uvmhealth.edu. Happy to email it around. Um, it will also be listed on the network DEI page that will be published shortly. So calling out and calling in, those are two different things. Both are really important in, in terms of interrupting bias. I think about calling out is really like when you need to let someone know that their words or actions are unacceptable and like will not be tolerated. Like if like if you need to intervene quickly, like to interrupt or prevent further harm, sometimes that can look like if um, a nurse may walk into a room and they observe a patient berating uh, another staff member especially if it has to do, I mean, with any regard, but we're thinking about like the diversity variables, the identities, right? You, you need it to just stop, right? And so that, that would be an example of a time when you should call out. And what that can look like is like, wow, you know, ouch, like I need you to stop right there, or okay, I'm having a strong reaction to that, and I need to let you know why, or I need you to know how your comment just landed on me, or it sounded like you just said X, Y, Z. Is that really what you meant? And, you know, 
uh, one that I think could be really helpful for nursing um, is saying like, that's not our culture here. Those are not our values. You know, there is that revised policy on unsafe patient behaviors or discriminatory patient behaviors. And um, we're working on some educational material to be circulated to help um, teams know how to kind of enforce that policy and speak about it. It's it's supported by the organization to say to patients that are um, being discriminatory towards staff and providers like, you know, that language or that behavior is not acceptable here. That is, you know, this is a, a place where it's important for everyone to feel safe so we can provide you the best care possible. And so those are some examples of calling out, you know, like one thing that I think is so important to remember that it is a really powerful thing for the target of oppression or the target of discrimination to hear these words from the mouth of an ally. Yeah, it is incredibly powerful and and really reparative. And I think you had said uh, at one point to me, it's like what's it's if you see it happening to another colleague, like harm happening, it's the most important is just to stop stop that. However way that is and remove that person or whatever, like so get that person to a safe space. To me, that's very clear. Like it's a clear action that is not that hard, right? Like you can be like, whatever it is, you even if it's changing the subject altogether um, is like, at least that stops the harm from continuing. And I know at least for me, that was super helpful when you said that. Good, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that that was helpful. I think another thing that, that I hear about too, that pertains to nursing and, you know, sometimes occurs on the floors is if there's like peer-to-peer interactions that are harmful or um, have bias within them or discrimination, right, that it can feel sometimes harder to call in or call out a colleague. Absolutely, yep. And so these, you know, these tools can be helpful in that regard. And just remembering that the person who experienced the harm, like both, both people need support but ignoring what happened can oftentimes cause more harm for the person who experienced like the discrimination or the bias, right? So making sure to circle notice back. It. So figuring out a way to notice it yes. in a way that, I, and I like the examples you used because it was more towards going to curiosity than blame. Yeah. So while that land, and keeping it personal, that landed that didn't land great for me. Um, I need a minute to think about what was just said, or this is what I heard. Is that what you meant? Like noticing it, keeping it personal with regard to how it felt in the moment for yourself is really helpful to me too. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, and that's one of the the things with calling in, right? So we just spoke about calling out. So calling in is another way to interrupt bias. And that's like, when, when there's an opportunity to explore deeper, like make meaning together, find a mutual sense of understanding across differences. I think about calling in as a way to like, how how might you call out the behavior while calling in the person? You know, again, like it's more focused on reflection than reaction. And usually it takes time and energy, right? Yes, and so yeah. some examples of language for calling in would be like, I'm curious, what was your intention when you said that? Or... Um, how did you decide or determine or conclude ABC, you know, whatever the person said, or how might the impact of your words, or your actions differ from your intent? What did you assume to be true about blank? You know, um, there, you know, in your best opinion, you know, in your opinion, what is the best case scenario? Like, again, engaging in reflection, like trying to maintain that cultural curiosity 
And that is not just for the person that may be perpetuated bias, but also for the person that was on the receiving end of it. Having that cultural curiosity and cultural humility to be like, I don't, you know, I have assumptions about how this may have felt or this is how I heard it, but I don't want to assume that that's what it felt like for you. Right. right. That, right. And that this was the impact for you, you know, and engaging in those conversations. Right. right. Yeah. Cause it's super complicated because you are, you are receiving it with everything that you have, right. All of the opinions and the things that so you receive it one way when the person may have meant it in a different way than what you perceived it. So it's a nice tool to be able to like engage that conversation. Right. And I do think you mentioned this earlier, which I, I struggle with this too, where, Anybody who is of the BIPOC community or is any of anything who do, does not need to become the educator of me as a white female on what it's what it what the racism experience is like I struggle with engagement and curiosity and 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 learning versus putting the burden on somebody right. else to teach me right. my lesson. Right, right. Yeah. And that's tricky, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it really is. And I'm so glad you asked that question because I've been dying to talk about this. <laughs> um, because I think that that trips a lot of people up and, and I understand it. And it comes from a place of like wanting to get this right, right? Like wanting to wanting to learn and to grow and to have these conversations. And so I think there's a really big difference in having a conversation and wanting to learn and get to know about a person's experience, right. like by, by about an individual's experience versus speaking to a, a member of the, you know, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and or people of color, in case they hear um, yeah, listeners yeah. aren't aware of the acronym, about asking a person of you know, that may identify as a person of color to speak for their entire race. Yep. Right. 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 Those are two different things. Right. So if, if somebody is coming to me and is like, we just, I was in a meeting and I heard this comment and there was this interaction and I'm curious about it. What did that feel like for you, Marissa? What was the impact of that? What were you thinking? Or you chose to say this or chose not to. I'm curious about that. That feels very different than somebody coming to me and saying, when White people say this. What do black people feel about that? Or like, how do we how do we get rid of racism, Marissa? That's a million dollar question. I can't tell you because my people didn't create it. You know, like, right, like, right, like right. my mind kind of, you know, so it's a very different thing. It would put me in a different position. You know, if you are seeking to engage in a conversation because you are wanting to build connection with that human being. Right. versus you are having this conversation because you want to learn about another culture, right? right? Like there are plenty of books. There's a lot of things you could Google and read about. Right, right. That's a very good point. It's interesting. I had, we have the privilege of caring for a lot of people from um, the Mohawk Nation in New York. And I was talking to a patient one time and trying to figure out what the proper reference would be for the group of Mohawk and and she said she prefers to be called a first American and and I loved that phrase <laughs> and because it speaks so clearly to me of the truth right yes. of yeah and in that moment I realized that like maybe she wasn't speaking of what every single person in the Mohawk Nation wants to be referred to as but she and her family prefer to be referred to as first Americans I it was just it, I get goosebumps right now even thinking about it because it was such a learning experience for me about 
that's not what I need to call everybody. That's right. not, you know, that, right. that is what she prefers right. to be called. And right. that was a term I'd never heard right. before. Right. And right. it was such a powerful term for me yes. that I, I get, I, it sort of was enlightening to me around that, this whole conversation. And um, it makes it more sensitive moving forward. Like, okay, maybe I need to be asking next time. Like, okay, what do you prefer that, that you be called? You know, trying to, you know, take that as, even a step further. Yeah, so, absolutely. I, I love that too, First American, and and I I think I first thought of, well, I know in Canada, like First Nation, like First right. Nation people, that I, I just, I love that, because you're right, that is more accurate history. Right, and there's something you said that I think is really important to also highlight, that you recognized the that individual's ability and made space for her autonomy to identify herself. Yep. Um, I, I'm engaged in a lot of conversations recently about the term BIPOC. There are many people that are people of color within the network and the and um, UBMMC that don't like that term, don't yep. want it to be referred to them. And then there are plenty of people that like it, right? And so again, it's this idea of really making sure that every individual has the space and the I don't know the the, the power to identify themselves, yep. right? I love that. Right. We need to be kind of be more focused on, OK, this this person that's in front of me right now and let's open to them. And so they're more comfortable sharing where, where they're at. Also, another example, like in terms of gender equity, right, how we do pronouns and how we should be asking every patient we work with, what are your preferred pronouns? How we could be leading with what our preferred pronouns are, even in meetings to kind of create the culture where it feels more it feels more comfortable and safer for people to self-identify yeah absolutely right, right. Um, uh, it's su- it's such it's such interesting it's such interesting work it's um it's amazing to me i mean i i am i think that we are unbelievably lucky to have you here yeah. i mean it is like i don't even know how vermont got so lucky seriously <laughs> conversation about like how I came to Vermont and it, yeah, yeah, it, it, it related a, a bit to actually the importance of organizational DEI work. So I moved to Vermont with my family about four years ago, never been here, didn't, didn't know anybody here, zero connection to Vermont. But my partner was applying for jobs all over um, the country and saw a posting at UVM and the job posting had a paragraph in it that said, seeking diverse candidates that will contribute to our, um, I, I don't know, it was like multicultural environment or essentially like DEI initiatives must speak to how you will contribute to increasing a diverse sense of belonging within UVM. But you have to you have to speak to it in your cover letter. It was something okay. way better yeah. worded than that. Yeah. But my spouse looked at that and was like, oh, if they're going to put that in their job posting, like maybe this is actually a community or an organization that would value me, that would want me to be there that, you know, and so he applied and, and also for context, he's a black male. And so it was like, okay, we don't know anything about Vermont. Like we've heard Vermont is known to be a pretty white state, but if they're writing that in their job, <laughs> posting, maybe we'll apply. And so that is literally the reason why my family is up here, you know, and then I've, 
you know, luckily was able to find a position at the hospital and like the rest is kind of, you know, the story's unfolding. But if that posting, if that, if that language was not in the job posting, we probably wouldn't be here. Isn't that amazing? It's so out of curiosity, yeah. does he work here at the hospital or was it elsewhere? He works at UVM. You not at, the, at, the, at, the, at the university. Yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah. Excellent. yeah. Oh, that's that's a, such a good example of of an institution putting themselves out there. I mean, that's amazing. I think I kind of wanted to maybe this is a good segue. So what does it look like to be an anti-racist organization for UVMMC? Like is because uh, obviously this is a something that is evolving and is it is not something that is just okay, we're going to do these and that's it. There's not a line, there's no line in the sand, right? right. So it's a, it's a living, breathing thing, continu- continual thing that does not, that does not have a line in the sand where it's like, we're now anti-racist. It's a layered process and it's also bringing policies in that is going to support being anti-racist. And how are we working towards that? What that looks like? So, so you're right when you said that it is a process and that it's unfolding. I rely on Ibram Kendi's kind of definition in his his book, How to Be Anti-Racist. Um, that's something that that I'm discussing with the senior leaders in the bi-monthly director operations meeting, kind of going through and discussing his book. But just for listeners, like, so Kendi defines anti-racism and anti-racist as one who is supporting an anti-racist policy through their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. Um, what I like that Kendi says is that it's not about a racist person, anti-racist person. It's is is that person, is that organization either perpetuating racism through ideas or policies, or are they actively uprooting and fighting against racism with ideas and policies? And so I think that that's important just for a foundational understanding. So as an organization, There are several policy reviews that are happening right now through an anti-racist lens. There are many things that are kind of being rewritten, um, recognizing we can't be an anti-racist organization if we have racist, you know, again, intentionally or unintentionally, it doesn't really matter, right? Policies, things are being changed and rewritten in that regard. Also, it is us as an organization committing to being actively anti-racist, not just passively, I'm not racist, right? But like, how are we looking for any inequities within our systems, our policies, our patient care, and even like health equity data? What are we doing about it? How are we uprooting barriers? Yeah, it is an active engaging process. And it's one that, you know, I'm thankful that Dr. Leffler has been very vocal about being committed to having our organization be an anti-racist organization. And I'm hoping some of that disparity um, work or like what that maybe data is uh, will be shared. Because I think as nurses, if we are aware of kind of the disparities that are happening uh, definitively, then it's easier for us to kind of maybe make a change or shift how our practices and engage engage in that. Because I think I'm going to generalize nurses, (laughs) my bias. But, you know, we want the best for our patients. We want to give the best care. Us not knowing or recognizing the disparities that might be happening is is harder for us to do that. And so yeah. it'd be, be really great to, when kind of as we're 
developing the data around that, what that looks like in our organization. And, and, and those are hard, I'm sure as an organization, those are hard to kind of even come to, right? Because you're like, I don't want to recognize as an organization that I that we have these disparities in our healthcare system. Yeah, this conversation is just really timely because there, there are a group of us that have been meeting to create a health equity kind of dashboard about what right. we're going to be committing yeah. to measure from a population health standpoint. And Dr. Um, Patrick Bender is really leading that initiative. And and so I believe that that stuff will be published and made more available. I think it's really just in like the final stages of kind of approval. But that is something that is going to be happening in terms of collecting data, looking at what even some of the national trends have been and how can how we can align you know, uh, language access is a big one. That that was a, yep. a really resounding result from our diversity workforce assessment. That's big, especially for nursing too. We don't have good access to our interpretive services. interpretive services. It yeah. hinders our care huge, hugely. I yeah. mean, it's such on every level. It affects the patient. It affects us. It affects the family. I mean, it's like yeah. Big. No, I completely agree. I mean, some of the qualitative data that we got from the survey was that you know, some nurses were saying, like, we don't know how to work or access the VRI iPads, or when we go to get them, you know, they're not functioning, or even questions about, okay, is tele-interpretation, when, when is that okay, but when is it more clinically in, indicated for there to be in vivo interpretation, right? right. So all, all of that is, is really central on, on my radar, as well as many other people's. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Wow. Uh, yes. I feel like we could talk to you all day. Yeah, I know. Let's go have lunch. <laughs> I feel the same way. I, I, feel <laughs> I, I have one more question, and then I know you are you good on time? I know we had, okay. okay. This had come up with another colleague of mine. My question is how do we target or start targeting the people that aren't as engaged? like our colleagues, you know, kind of bring them into this so they feel like this is an this is as, as important, important as the people that are like working on, on it. Everybody's sort of at a different so it's a it's a it's a timeline, right? It's a continuum and we have people yeah. that are that we see and that we are able to identify that are not let's you know, say, maybe not recognizing that the necessity of the necessity, it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, how do we bring those people into this and you know and because i think there's a level of exclusivity some people feel then excluded from the diversity conversation right like yeah and and that's for that's like, interesting. Well, i don't i don't i'm not, not part that, of me. that's not me or, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly yeah. yeah you know i um i will just share with you my thoughts i will name that they are my opinions and and they're based off of some of my past experiences and doing this work here and in other organizations and I will also name that I am actively involved in the same conversation. Like yesterday, I had a few conversations around how can we broaden our reach, but also make sure that we are being as inclusive as possible and right. that we are creating an environment where everyone can come to this work at whatever point they need to start. So I recognize that there may be others in the organization that I that I could learn from and get some more. <laughs> So I think that there are a couple of ways to approach that. One, I do think it's important for there to be team, department, institutional accountability, right? For this to kind of be built into how we start to do performance evals, how we 
even um, have um, job, you know, description requirements when we're hiring? Is it embedded in when we're interviewing? Are we like those kinds of things help to also change the culture and to bring more people in? Some other ways are really thinking about psychological safety and how to enhance that, right? That there's no such thing as a dumb question that recognizing that this is a journey and um, I use this analogy as, you know, we're, we're on a bus together and we all get on at a different stop and it's okay, but the bus is moving. So get on so that you, one, are not left and then have to like run to catch up, but so that you are also a part of creating the culture that we are trying to shift, right? That like every single voice is valuable and important. It's important, right. Not just certain people's or certain identity variables, right? Like everybody's voice is important. We are also looking at creating some spaces because I, I am recognizing and I've been getting feedback that there are many white colleagues that want to engage in this work, but don't feel comfortable asking questions either to me because they're afraid they're going to offend me or to other, you know, multicultural teams, but like could benefit from a space where it is for people that benefit from white privilege, right? That can come and learn and talk and ask some of the how-to questions with, without feeling the pressure or as though they don't want to ask because they don't want to hurt their other colleague, right? And so we're looking at how to create some of those spaces. Do you um, mean do you mean like a space where so as a as a white female I there's something that I want to ask that I that might offend you, but you're you're it's a space where you say ask me the question and we'll talk about it. Is that what you mean? Like that's so I mean I mean that and I mean kind of like an affinity space where it's just white people and maybe white oh, I got you. Where, yep, okay. where you're having the conversation. Yep about, you know, because there's white identity, there's like white racial, ethnic and cultural identity development. There is black, you know, racial, yep, ethnic, cultural you. identity yep. development. And so there are some things that are a part of the white identity development that I don't have lived experience with. That doesn't mean that I can't support people through it. It just means that I understand that they may not want to come to me with some of their I questions. I got you. I got you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's there's conversations that you don't maybe want to hear your parents have either. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. it's just like you're my, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> and I think that, you know, you know, as many of us that are really committed and are champions to this work, really checking our own cultural humility and knowing that that extends not just to those that have subjugated identities, but also how can we maintain our humility with those that may have just recognized that racism exists still, that it's not something just from the 1600s or the Jim Crow South, right? Yeah, yeah, that it yeah. still exists in Vermont. So how can we have humility in in speaking with and also caring for those colleagues and having conversations? Um, again, the calling in resources like those, yeah. that's helpful. Yeah. I'm not sure if I answered your question, Stephanie. No, you did. You did. Because those are definitely good examples of like, how do we start engaging other people? How right. do we start bringing people in that, you know, or people, like you said, that may be resistant because they feel embarrassed. They feel mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. they're not, they don't know how to be heard with their questions or, you know, aren't, aren't quite there yet to be open with. I guess that's what I was own. getting at. They're sort of embarrassed to say what yeah. there is on their mind around race with fear of offense, you right, know, and, right. and I think a lot of people feel that way. At least that's the feedback that I'm, I'm, I'm getting. I, I do think it's important. 
another way kind of kind of in to like um, bring more people into the conversation is to take an intersectional approach. And so there are a lot of really good reasons why we are focusing a lot on race right now. Um, we're not focusing exclusively on it. If we can have conversations about race and gain tools to have conversations about it, then that helps us to have conversations about every other identity. Race yes. is at the intersection of every identity, right? And so, but for some people, okay, maybe they, the, let's see, to use the, the bus stop analogy, maybe the bus stop that they would get on the bus isn't the race conversation, but it may be the gender. It may be religion, it may be ability status, it may be language. And so widening these conversations, I think, is going to be really key, too. And and I think I, I think maybe sort of the key in all of it is conversation. Yeah. Having, yeah. Keeping the conversation alive, like literally every single solitary day. Yeah. It's an important conversation to yeah. have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. Wow. Well, we had it so fun. <laughs> it was really fun. <laughs> this was fun. I enjoyed this. Thank yeah. you for coming. <laughs> we will, um, if you don't mind, I'm sure we're going to have you, love to invite you on again. Yeah. Uh, I, I think. Would, this, I would love it. This we kind of do a little bit of a series with you. So. Um, yeah. Because I think there's so, so much. Stay tuned, listeners. Yeah. And there's so <laughs> much like the areas we can go to and focus on. And there's, and right, like keeping the conversation going and moving forward. Yeah. Um, as much as we can. So any, so uh, just real quick, uh, there's the website that's going to be yep. live soon. You're hosting those, uh, that racial humility um, workshop. workshop through Cornerstone, which is amazing. And it sounds like there's just a lot of uh, new things coming out and policies that are continuing to go. Is there anything else that you want to share that's there are, there are two things that, so we're still doing our monthly uh, listening sessions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and this 2021, we kind of played with the format a little bit where we now like invite other people throughout the organization to either speak or we have really candid conversations about their own personal journey with DEI work. Um, and so th those happen the first Tuesday of every month. We rotate the times to increase accessibility for all staff, but the next one will be April 6th at 7 p.m. Okay. And they happen on Zoom. And so I'm excited about that one coming up. I think we're going to be doing a panel with some members of our EDI steering committee yep. and having some conversations about the vision and their own journey in the work. And so that's that's one thing that happens monthly. And then another thing is the employee resource groups. Um, they're currently accepting applications for leadership positions in those, like if you are wanting to chair or co-chair. We're starting with LGBTQ plus and BIPOC um, group. And then in the fall, there will be um, kind of a, a pathway to apply and stand up more ERGs. One thing that I want to make sure everyone knows is that any staff member, regardless of how you identify, can join any ERG. You do not have to identify as LGBTQ. You don't have to identify as BIPOC to join. You can just you can join and just help to drive the mission forward. And so those are some great leadership development opportunities. And also, I think will help to have more small group conversations about DEI. That's great. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks. Awesome. All right. Well, you have a wonderful you rest of the day. Have a lovely, foggy, rainy day. <laughs> I will. I will. You do the same. Have a great weekend. Thanks. Thanks. You Thanks. too. Bye. Take care.